Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men or all people, excuse me, to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. And the people answered, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? And Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. Because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. And Father, we humbly ask as we continue now in a time of worship by opening your word that our hearts would be inclined towards worship by being submitted and attentive to what you would say to us through the voice of the living God through the word of God as we open it together and study it. So please bless your word, prepare each one of us accordingly. You know what we're asking and what we need, Lord. Speak to us now powerfully and in a real personal way through your word this morning. We ask together in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think perhaps the most underestimated power that each and every human being possesses is the power of decision. The power of decision is probably one of the most overlooked and underestimated powers that every person possesses because your decisions, if you haven't realized it yet, your decisions have a powerful influence your decisions have a powerful impact. Your decisions have a powerful effect in what they will yield. And I think this section of scripture is clearly driving home that reality, not just in a circumstantial sense, but even in an eternal sense in regards to what the power of a decision can yield. Remember in our study in John 12, Jesus in our recent section has just stated that his appointed hour has now come for him to be glorified as both the Son of God and the Son of Man. Remember, his hour is a reference to that appointed time, that predetermined time, when Jesus, as a part of his life on this earth, would suffer and die upon the cross as he died as a substitute in our place as a sinless man making the ultimate sacrifice for us as a group of sinful people. He'd become that perfect sacrifice that would take away once for all the sin of the world and remove its punishment for those who would trust in what Jesus did. That was the whole purpose, Jesus said, for which he became a man, which was to rescue humanity in this manner. And Jesus has just been speaking about this. He's emphasized even in our prior verses how his death 
was a necessary process in order for souls to be able to be saved from sin and to be forgiven. For out of Jesus' death, he would then raise back to life, overcoming the death process, and therefore now as a risen Savior, as the living Lord, is able to then offer his eternal life to those who come to him and receive it from him, to be able to have access into heaven after we pass from this earth. So he's now in this section as we move on in verse 31. He's continuing to talk in direct reference about his death and the things that his death will accomplish for mankind. So look with me again back in verse 31 as he continues. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So Jesus' obedient death upon the cross, what he's going to say to us here, had powerful effects in what it accomplished. His decision as not only the Son of God, but as the Son of Man, fully God and fully man, his decision as a man to become obedient to the will of the Father to the very point of death had extremely powerful impact and effect in what it accomplished. Two things particularly we see in the statements of Jesus here in verse 31. First of all, it demonstrated God's satisfactory judgment against the sin of the world universally. It demonstrated God's satisfactory judgment against the sin of the world. You see what Jesus says there in verse 31? He says, now the idea is in what I'm about to do is the judgment of the world. This is what Jesus is alluding to here. The cumulative guilt of all the sin of humanity. If you can envision in your mind, from the very first breath of Adam, all the way through to you and I currently, and the sins that we cumulatively contribute to the overall sin of the world, to the end of time to which Jesus will ultimately come back to this world a second time, the cumulative guilt of all the sin of humanity and human history, every person needed to be punished, needed to be judged by a holy and a righteous God. God is a good judge and a good judge must judge with equity and with justice and the sin and guilt of all the world needed to be punished by the creator, a holy God, and God accomplished that process. The Bible tells us, Jesus is saying, by pouring out his righteous wrath against the sin of mankind, by pouring out that wrath upon his son. God was judging sin in his son in what Jesus accomplished for us. Listen to how Isaiah 53 spoke of that. It says that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, that's on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So Jesus was our substitute. Jesus died in our place. We all deserve punishment for our sin. That's understandable and recognizable. We're all sinful. We all fail. And one broken law makes you a lawbreaker. You can try and justify and make yourself feel better than others. Well, I don't do as much as they do, or I'm not really in comparison to them. I'm not really that bad. And, and we try and establish our own standard of morality. Listen, that's not what's going to matter when you stand before a holy and a righteous God. What's going to matter is God's standard. And God's standard is sin is sin. And if you break the law one time, you are a lawbreaker. Someone else may break it many times and way worse. But we're all therefore lawbreakers. A lawbreaker is a lawbreaker. 
And the reality is, is that needs to be judged. And what the Bible teaches is that Jesus justly took the righteous punishment that we all deserve for our sin. He stood in our place. That punishment needed to happen. 1 John 2, 2 says it this way. It says, Jesus himself is the propitiation. It's a big word that means the satisfactory payment. Jesus is the satisfactory payment for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. God judged the sin of the whole world, which we contributed to and still contribute to in the death of Jesus for us. So therefore, here's the good news. The displeasure of God, the anger, the righteous anger of God against sin has been satisfied. It's been satisfied because God judged it in his son when Jesus stepped into our place and our personal debt of sin was paid off by Jesus and what he did for us. The satisfactory payment of his sinless life and his righteous blood that was shed as he bore the wrath of God for the sin of the world. That's why Jesus alone can forgive your sins. That's why Jesus alone can save you from the penalty of your sin and from hell and the damnation that we all righteously deserve. Romans 5 says it this way, Christ died for us, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So Jesus' death it demonstrated God's satisfactory judgment against the sin of the world. Sin was judged in Jesus, but also a second thing we see in verse 31 is Jesus' death also defeated the power and the authority of Satan or the devil over this fallen sinful world. It defeated the power and the authority of Satan over this fallen and sinful world. Look what he says in the second part of verse 31. He says, now, that is again, in his death, is what he's referring to, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Please take note, Jesus himself and the Bible and its teaching as a whole indicate very directly that Satan, the devil, has a measure of power of authority, of rulership over things spiritually, over the realm which is dark and evil and sinful. Jesus calls Satan here in our text the ruler of this world. In fact, that title is used by Jesus about the devil three times. It's used here. It's used again in John 14.30 and then again as well in John 16.11. Second Corinthians 4 calls the devil directly the God, little g, of this age, of this present age. Ephesians 2.2 calls the devil the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. We need to understand this important reality that Satan has an ability and authority to rule over certain things spiritually, that which is dark, that which is sinful. He has a realm of authority. Now, that authority came as the result of the failure of humanity. All the way back from the Garden of Eden, the fall of mankind, God created man. Remember, when God created man, he told him to what? Have dominion over the earth. He told man to subdue the earth and to what? rule over everything and when man therefore chose 
to disobey God and to also simultaneously submit himself to the suggestion and the leading of the devil in the Garden of Eden, basically, judicially, man forfeited that right, that responsibility that God gave to him, and basically forfeited that role and responsibility over to Satan himself, who now became the ruler of this present world, the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air with authority to rule over and control the system and the fallen condition of this world. And the devil, if you would, took or usurped, it wasn't given to him, he usurped and stole, therefore, this realm of authority to do what he does. And that is part of the reason we have to understand why it was necessary for Jesus to come to this earth as a man to redeem back what mankind lost for us. Jesus came to this earth as a man, in some ways you could say part of the reason was to perform sort of a POW mission, prisoners of war, that Jesus came and he entered into this world to defeat Satan's throne and to rescue humanity who in a sense were being held as prisoners of war spiritually because we forfeited our rights over to the devil and Jesus came to provide a way to set us free. 1 John 3.8 says this, listen. It says, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, revealed that he might destroy the works of the devil. He was manifested to destroy the works of the devil, to come in and to rescue us from that prisoner of war condition spiritually. Colossians 2 says it this way, that through Jesus' death on the cross, it says he disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. This is what Jesus is saying here to us in verse 31, that his death would accomplish, it would accomplish causing the ruler of this world, the devil, to be cast down, to be cast out, to be dethroned in the authority that he had usurped spiritually in his realm of rulership. So now Satan's authority is the result of the work of Christ. His authority over man has been broken. It's been defeated. And because of that reality, mankind, listen, no longer needs to remain a slave to sin. Mankind doesn't have to remain under the control of Satan's darkness and rule over them. There is liberation and freedom that's freely available for anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus to save them. Jesus said earlier in John's gospel, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Anyone can call upon Jesus and be liberated and freed from anything ruling over them that's sinful, that's satanic, that's dark in any way. And Jesus says as well in our text here that Satan will now as a result be cast out. That is continually dethroned. And when you study the scripture, it almost seems that that happens somewhat in stages in God's overall plan. Satan, the ruler of this world, being cast out. For example, he was first cast out of his position as a ruling angel when he fell and chose to disobey God. Isaiah 14 and passages like this describe that, how Satan was cast out of his position as a good and holy angel that he once controlled and fell and became a dark and fallen angel. Then as well, he was in a sense dethroned in another way when Jesus came and died and rose again. And that, as I said, broke the power of darkness that he had usurped 
from mankind in the Garden of Eden and broke that rulership that he had to be able to dominate and rule over mankind spiritually. Revelation 12 then describes another time, it seems, when it says Satan will be cast down as the some spiritual warfare between the devil and Michael and the archangel so forth. And it says again that the devil is cast down to the earth. And then the glorious news is that ultimately Revelation 20 says that the devil will be cast away forever. Once for all, Revelation 20 says the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Ultimately, the devil, listen, he's not running hell. It says he's going to be cast into the lake of fire. He's going to be cast into that place. Oh, the, the devil's down there ruling hell and it's a big party and you know he's got a big keg and he's shooting fireballs out of his mouth. You know, no, no, you know the, devil, the devil is actively trying to deceive mankind because he knows what his ultimate destiny and damnation and punishment and torment is going to be and he's trying to drag as many people as possible with him in the meantime. And notice it says that when Satan himself at the end of the time of the millennium is cast into the lake of fire. It says that he's cast in there where the beast and the false prophet, referring to the Antichrist and his false prophet. And it says where they are. So take notice, where they are. Those who had already been cast into the lake of fire, they didn't just burn up and dissolve. There was no, there was no annihilation. It was perpetual, continuous, eternal torment forever and ever and ever the suffering never ends the torment never ends it's something that continues on even as we will dwell forever in heaven if we choose to embrace jesus christ well verse 32 jesus then said and i if i'm lifted up from the earth will draw all peoples to myself and this he said signifying by what death he would die so jesus wanting to indicate the way in which he would die. He tells us how it would happen and what it would allow him to do. The way it would happen, he says, is I will be lifted up from the earth. And John adds the commentary. He was signifying and saying that what death he was going to die. In other words, Jesus was indicating that his death was not going to be by stoning, but by crucifixion. That crucifixion, again, remember, which was the capital punishment or the death sentence that was perfected, it wasn't originated with, it was perfected by the Romans. And crucifixion, you have to understand, was a brutal form of slow, painful, torturous death. It was not a quick process. It wasn't as if somehow you, you know, like standing before a firing line or, or something of that nature. It was a long, drawn out, painful form of torturous death reserved for the vilest of criminals in the Roman culture. And the way it was done is that someone was attached to a wooden cross so that they might be publicly dis disgraced. And as it says, they were lifted up. They were elevated up above ground level so they would be a visual image to lots of observers. In other words, it was impossible almost to not realize someone was being crucified 
because they were hanging there for an extended period of time, dying, suffering. If they had been beaten and flogged and scourged, their wounds open, animals coming of prey, picking at their wounds, watching them struggle to breathe as they were dying of asphyxiation, as they were unable to release the carbon dioxide after they breathed in because of the body slumping down, they couldn't get the carbon dioxide back out as they there struggled and struggled and struggled in a long form of torturous death. This process took a while and it was hard for anyone not to see someone dying in this disgraceful way. And Jesus, though Jewish and though accused of blasphemy, claiming to be God by the Jews, was not stoned as his form of death. Instead, according to prophecy in Psalm 22, hundreds of years before, Jesus was executed by crucifixion. He died by crucifixion, a long, arduous process. He was lifted up for all the world to see what was happening as he was dying. And Jesus says here that he wanted his death clearly to be evident for all to be aware of, which is probably one of the reasons that God sovereignly chose crucifixion. So that the death of Jesus would be so evident and the form of death. That's why the Bible says Jesus was obedient to death, even the death of a cross. Because that was the most vile, disgraceful, painful possible form of death. But Jesus says, through his death of being lifted up in crucifixion, look what he says. He says, through that, I will draw all peoples to myself. The powerful display of Jesus' love in dying on a cross like this in our place, the innocent dying in the place of guilty criminals who should be on the cross, that powerful display of Jesus' love, the imagery and the realization of that would become the motivating source to continually draw people to Jesus. Because it would cause people, as Jesus looked upon Jesus, seeing what he was doing for them, to say, you did that for me. You did that for me? You would allow that to happen to you? When that should be me? You know, the Bible tells us in 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Well, how do we know what love is? By that. By that. Because when we see that, there's something about that that speaks so loudly, and that's why, listen, that's why the proclamation of this truth that Jesus Christ willingly chose in his great depths of love for you to allow himself to be disgraced and brutalized and beaten and pour out his blood in death and suffering in a sacrificial way to step in your place, to take your personal punishment for every time that you and I have done something selfish or foolish or rude or ignorant or arrogant or wrong or self-serving that Jesus would say I know you've done all that but I don't want you to have to suffer for it and I want to suffer on your behalf so that you can be excused and pardoned for that and that somehow the Bible says Jesus words tell us becomes a drawing influence that causes a person when they see that demonstration of love it causes Jesus to be able to draw people to himself to say Look at what I've done for you. Will you please receive what I've done for you? Will you please follow me? Look at the extent of my love for you. The heart and purpose of Jesus, it's very clear in his words, is to constantly do things to draw people to himself. That's what Jesus is trying to do. 
And that's why as well, we should lift up this truth before people and let them know that because it's through that reality that Jesus does begin to draw people to himself in the ways that he can. Well, they, upon hearing this, verse 34, answered and said, we have heard from the law that the Christ, again, remember that's the Greek term for the Messiah, the, the anointed one, the Mashiach that the Jews are waiting for, Christ or Christos is the Greek term. We've heard from the law, they said, that the, the Christ, the Messiah, remains forever. So they're saying, wait a minute, we thought the law of God said, from what we understood, that the Messiah would remain forever. In other words, his kingdom would have no end, that it would be an eternal Kingdom, And that is true, but again, what were they missing? We said before, they were missing the fact that the first coming of Jesus Christ was to fulfill prophecies of him as a suffering servant. And that his first time, he would dethrone himself humbly and willingly and come and sacrifice and, and suffer himself for our sins, then return to heaven for a time period, and then he would return a second time as a glorified reigning king and Messiah to set up his glorious throne, which he would remain forever. That's why they're questioning this, saying, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Well, Jesus answered, verse 35, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light. Lest darkness overtake you, he who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And these things Jesus spoke and then departed and was hidden from them. So notice, Jesus, knowing that his time of his earthly ministry is drawing to a conclusion now, he begins to again encourage them to walk in the light of his life. He says there in our text, a little while longer, the light is with you. Remember, Jesus said of himself back in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So Jesus is saying, look, my life, what I provide, the light that my life provides spiritually and eternally, he says, it's only going to be with you for a short while longer. Because he knew he was about to die and ultimately would be returning back to the right hand of the Father in heaven. So he's saying there, his exhortation, verse 35, he's saying, walk in my light while it's with you. While it's available to you, his warning, his concern, look at it. He says, lest, verse 35, lest darkness overtake you. See, we need to realize Jesus is reminding us to not come to Jesus or continually not walk with Jesus is to live in the dark spiritually. And Jesus says, lest the darkness overtake you. Please notice, darkness is not passive. It's always aggressively trying to overtake people. That's why our culture is moving the way it is. Because darkness is not passive. It's always trying to overtake. And Jesus is trying to caution us, don't let darkness overshadow your life. And he says, when a person walks in the dark, they don't know where they're going. It's very dangerous, he says. Again, if we just think of that naturally, when a person walks in darkness, they don't know where they're going. You can't see clearly, so you can't make good decisions. You can't make right decisions. You're unable to find the right way because you're walking in the dark. And if you don't have light and you're walking in the dark, you're disoriented. You get lost. You get off track. You stumble. You fall. And it becomes a very dangerous thing to live and to walk in the dark because you have no sense of clear direction. Darkness in the Bible, remember, is always a picture of of what is evil and what is sinful. 
And the same way it's being used here represents being out of fellowship with God and his son who is light. Walking and living apart from Jesus and following him closely is equivalent to living and walking in the dark. A person becomes directionless. They start heading in the wrong ways in their life because they don't have light. They're living in a darkened perspective and it brings us to a place where whether we realize it or not, we start stumbling and heading into wrong directions. We start making dangerous decisions and destructive uh, choices with our lives and we get off track and disoriented. And Jesus's counsel, take note here in verse 36, is for people to act on the present opportunity that's afforded to them before it was too late. He says, verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus' counsel is to believe in him to choose to follow his lordship and his leadership and that will bring a person under the authority of a new kingdom under a new rulership. It tells us in Colossians that God delivers us from the power of darkness and conveys or transfers us into the kingdom of the son of his love, who again is who? The light of the world. That's why Jesus says here, if you yield to my light, you will become a son of light and you'll begin to walk in the light and have light for your life, for your decisions and the way that you find clarity and direction to make sure that you stay safe rather than not know where you're going and wander off a cliff or do something harmful or destructive circumstantially and of course eternally being worse. Let's go on, verse 37. It says, but although Jesus had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. Take notice of this here. Though Jesus had done many powerful miracles, signs, and wonders, he gave clear revelation to signify and indicate who he was as the Son of God, yet it says, despite that, many still not believe in him. And notice the text says, though he had done so many signs, so many, and then the word signs, because even the very miracles themselves that Jesus was doing, he was doing specific, purposeful miracles to specifically indicate who he was. He wasn't just doing a random miracle to show a, a power signs and wonder show. You know, he wasn't like some who get television shows. Watch this. Jesus was doing purposeful miracles with the very power of God in a way to specifically, like a sign, indicate that's the Messiah. That's the Son of God. That, that's equivalent to, and he was doing signs to try and reveal exactly who he was. Yet the Bible says, regardless of the many signs he did, they did not believe in him. It was not due to a lack of evidence that people didn't believe. It was instead due to a lack of interest and desire and willingness. They saw what Jesus showed them. You couldn't miss it. It was so clear. We may have, may have trouble sometimes explaining ourselves clearly or showing a person what we're really trying to show them. This is God. He did an efficient job, I assure you. It wasn't if he stood back and said to Jesus, maybe next time we could try a little different approach there. This was perfect revelation. This was continuous and constant, as clear as can be. Revelation to humanity of who Jesus was without excuse. They saw what he showed, but they would not accept what he was showing to them. 
They willingly, stubbornly were hardening their hearts in unbelief and stubborn refusal. And let us just remind ourselves from this, because it's a good reminder, that even powerful, miraculous miracles and signs from God do not guarantee a person will believe. People will say that, oh, sh show me and then I'll believe. The Bible says believe and then you'll start to see. That's what the Bible teaches. All throughout the Bible, God did miracles with Israel. Their biggest problem was unbelief. Jesus did miracles and signs, perfect revelation, and they did not believe. You may be saying, well, I'd be a much stronger Christian if God would just show me more. If he would just show me something, just, that's all. God's, you've got to show me something, God. I need some evidence. That's no guarantee. You'll believe if you want to believe. You'll follow Jesus if you want to follow Jesus. He's more than happy to show and reveal himself. He's done it. He says, ask, seek, knock. It'll be given to you. You'll see. It's not a lack of evidence. It was a lack of desire and willingness to believe. This is what the text is revealing to us here. Their unbelief in Jesus wasn't a surprise, however. God knew it would happen. Look at verse 38. This happened that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Isaiah 53, Lord, who's believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So notice, this wasn't a shock to God. God knew in advance that they would choose not to believe despite how Jesus was clearly revealed. He says, who will believe the report though? The Bible tells us in Isaiah 53 as well that Jesus was despised and rejected among men. Now, take notice as we continue here the sad testimony that begins to unfold. Again, what does verse 37 say? Although Jesus had done many signs before them, they did not believe in him. Verse 39, continuing on, therefore they could not believe. They did not believe in him, therefore they could not believe. Can I just say, wow, please take notice there. Please take notice in the word of God, the dangerous spiritual progression and consequence of what happened. Their choice to repeatedly refuse the light that was given to them spiritually by God through Jesus Christ to stubbornly reject the clear message that was being spoken to them in their conscience before their eyes again and again and again and again and their decision to continuously refuse that and stubbornly reject it ultimately led to a very destructive consequence spiritually it led to something horrible where their hearts became dull and hardened, their perspective became blinded, and it resulted in them coming to a point where they were not capable or able to then respond the way that they once would have been able to because they would not believe and respond. Eventually, they lost the ability to be able to believe and respond as they once could. Again, the text says they would not believe, and eventually after a time, they could not believe. I don't fully understand how all this works, but this is a scary spiritual reality that the word of God holds before us where constant refusal of the light of the Lord and the voice of his spirit and what he's saying to us and we keep hearing it again and again, we can ruin somehow our spiritual sensitivity with our free will as human beings where in some way we damage and destroy, listen, we damage and destroy the response system of the inner man. 
where we begin to harden ourselves and, and sear our conscience and somehow we start to lose capacity on the inward man to function as it once could when it was tender and sensitive. And somehow we, through our human refusal, ultimately can come to a place where perhaps God stops wrestling and he gives us over to our desire. And he gives us over to our will when he says, I've given you the freedom to choose it's evident that's what you've chosen. I won't wrestle with you anymore. I won't violate your free will anymore. I'll allow you to have that firm decision and to be resolved in it. And we find that because we would not believe or we would not respond, they could not believe. They could not respond. I don't know where that line is. But I certainly wouldn't flirt with it. The Bible teaches this is a very sobering thing. I don't think it's wise to ever press that limit, but to realize the reality of these things. So he says, therefore they could not believe again because Isaiah had said, he had blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. And these things, John says, Isaiah had said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Again, take notice here. This was not something God prescribed to happen. God didn't prescribe, yeah, I want to harden their hearts because I don't want them to be saved. That's unbiblical. God didn't prescribe them to be hardened in their hearts or not see. God simply being God and knowing all predicted what would happen. God predicted and foresaw the rejection that would take place and that's what Isaiah 6 was a reference to. It was a time when Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. He saw the Lord high and lifted up in a vision upon his throne. And as Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus for himself, he was overwhelmed, Isaiah 6, bows down in humble submission to the Lord. Yet he also saw in the midst of that vision his other fellow Jews who were refusing to submit to the authority and rulership of Jesus. And how they were choosing instead to not want the Lord Jesus to rule over them and the horrible consequence it was bringing upon them as a people nationally as they hardened their hearts against clear revelation and therefore God judicially allowed their hearts to become hardened in that condition. To become blinded as they were shutting their eyes and shutting their eyes. I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. God said, okay, then you won't see it anymore. I won't make you see it anymore. And God gave them over. They lost this ability to see or to understand, to turn to Jesus. They forsook his healing and his help that they would have been able to have received. And instead, in spiritual blindness and dullness, they allowed themselves to suffer unnecessarily in their rejection. And this, of course, describes exactly what the Bible teaches has happened to the majority of the Jewish nation in their rejection of Jesus as Messiah when he came. Romans chapter 11 says that a judicial blindness of God in part has happened to the Jewish people nationally until the fullness of the Gentiles shall come in. And this is something that has transpired. Again, please don't miss or overlook here. Jesus will make things so clear to us. Jesus makes things so clear again and again and again. Tries to get our attention tries to get our attention and says, please, see this, please respond. And he shows it again and again and again. But if we choose to ignore and reject and turn to him, we risk damaging something inside. Ephesians 4 speaks of having our understanding darkened, having a blindness of the heart and becoming past feeling. 
I beseech you by the mercies of God, don't let your heart ever go there. That's a dangerous place to go. But it comes from constant, continuous refusal of what the Lord's trying to say to us and what the Lord is trying to show to us. Verse 42 then says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many did believe in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. So there were those, notice, who believed in Jesus, even among some of the religious rulers. However, they kept it secret because of fear of what? Repercussions and the personal cost it would be to their lives. They would be put out of the synagogue, which again was huge in that culture. I mean, the synagogue life was what their culture revolved around. This was a very real pressure. We've talked about this before. And a struggle that those who were believers in Jesus in that day had to come to terms with. That if they chose to believe in Jesus, they would lose the approval and the privileges of culture to admit and confess openly you believe in Jesus and to faithfully follow him outwardly and openly would truly bring personal loss. And some weren't willing to pay that cost. And in the same way that Jesus has suffered for us, we have to remember as his followers, there's a measure of personal cost and suffering we have to be willing to endure as well. This is a part of the Christian life. There will always be some form of personal cost to admit and confess that you're a follower of Jesus openly and to faithfully follow him publicly and unashamedly. Just like they would be put out of the synagogue, you might be put out of your friend group. Oh, you're one of, oh, you can't hang with us anymore then or we're going to ostracize you now because you're, you're weird. You're one of those? You may be put out of your friend group. You, you may be uh, losing certain privileges or opportunities that maybe that opportunity would have been there and maybe someone else has that opportunity but because of your stand for Christ or your admission to be a follower of him, opportunities begin to disappear. And I don't know where our culture is going and where our country is going this election but quite frankly, that may be the case in the near future. And we have to decide, are we willing to pay a cost to be dishonored? To it may even come from the religious establishment. It did in Jesus' day. Sometimes people choose to follow Jesus. They become born again, truly are saved, and they start to walk with the Lord. And maybe some religious establishment they grew up in, all of a sudden, what's the matter with you? What are you, part of some cult now or something? What, 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 what are you doing? You going to that place? That place don't even have a steeple on it. You're bringing your Bible there twice a week? You weird or something? Right? I mean, that kind of stuff happens. We laugh because some of us have experienced this. We've watched it. The reality for all of us is are we willing to embrace the shame of confessing Christ openly and serving him publicly? Are we willing to? Jesus said this in Matthew 10. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. You say, whoa, what does that mean? Well, it means, Jesus said, whoever confesses me before men... He'll confess before my Father in heaven. And whoever denies him now before men, he will deny before his Father in heaven. I think it means what it says. And it's a call to openly follow Christ, not be secret servant agents of the Lord. Verse 43 says, here's the reason why they made this error. Look, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. That was the reason for those who held back. They wanted and needed the approval of mankind more than they desired God's approval and God's acceptance. That's always a dangerous thing spiritually. 
That's a dangerous thing just to live your life in that way. Because I'll tell you, you know, those who are your cheerleader today, tomorrow they're going to end up being your worst critics anyway. I'd much rather just have God's approval because people are fickle anyway. Amen. Don't live for the praise of people and having their approval. You honor the Lord and the right people will approve of you and it will keep you out of making poor choices spiritually and eternally as well. Well, Jesus in response, verse 44, cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. So again, he speaks, as he said before, regarding his complete unity with the Father in heaven. This is what he's referring to here. Jesus speaks in verse 45 here of how he himself was the revelation of God the Father. He says there, if you observed me, you've also seen and observed the Father in heaven who sent me. Jesus is stating, as he's already said before, that seeing him, observing Jesus, in essence, is equal to seeing God, to observing God, because Jesus was the invisible God made manifest on this earth in human flesh. So if we want to know what God's like, here's the best way to know. Look at Jesus. As you see Jesus, you truly see what God is like, and that's why Jesus says there in verse 45, uh, verse 46, or excuse me, verse 45, therefore, he who sees me sees him who sent me. He says, I have come as a light, verse 46, into the world, again, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Take note, coming to Jesus in personal faith is the pathway out of living in darkness. Coming to Jesus in personal faith and following him is the pathway out of personal darkness. Jesus is saying here, whoever believes in me will not abide. The idea is remain. The word abide means to remain or to continue in. He says, do you want to not continue in darkness? Do you want to stop living in darkness? That comes in direct relationship to believing and following me with all of your heart. By nature, because we're all sinful inside, the inter internal light is out in every one of us to start with. But we don't have to keep living in the darkness. Jesus came to enlighten us of our condition and to lead us out of the darkness, to lead us out of that condition. We see that Jesus doesn't want anyone to remain in darkness. He wants to lead us out of that condition so that you and I, when we find ourselves living in the dark, before we're saved or even after you're saved, Jesus wants to get you out of the dark. And you need to believe that's his heart and believe that's his plan and follow him to get out of the dark. The question becomes very simply this. Do you want to remain in the darkness? Or do you want Jesus to lead you out of it? Jesus will lead you out of it. You don't have to abide, continue, remain in the darkness. You don't have to. You can follow Jesus and believe him and let him lead you out of that darkness instead and that's what he's offering. Verse 47 he says, and if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. He who rejects me does not receive my words has that which judges him the word that I've spoken will judge him in the last day for I've not spoken on my own authority but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as my Father has told me, so I speak. So Jesus' concluding statements in this speech here that he's communicating in that day with those people, notice they emphasize the importance and the authority, these last few verses, of his words. 
the authority and the importance of Jesus' words. I want to look at this in backwards order to see what Jesus is saying. Verse 49 and 50, Jesus is restating, as he said before, that the things that he says are only what God the Father wants him to say. He's indicated this many times before, even in John's gospel, that what he said was not independent of the Father. It was directly what the Father wanted him to say. Here's the point. Jesus did not speak about God. And Jesus honestly did not speak for God. Jesus was speaking as God. He was God speaking to humanity. That raises the level of the authority and the importance of Jesus' words. He says, the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say. And just as the Father has told me, so I speak. The words of Jesus carry great authority because the words of Jesus is the voice of God. And we have to therefore take that into consideration and give earnest heed and respond, respond rightly because what Jesus says in our response is the standard the Bible saying that we'll be judged by. That's what we're going to be judged by. Jesus says in verse 47, I didn't come to judge the world. I came to judge sin. He says, I came to save the world through my life, he's saying. It's not my heart to judge the world. But look in verse 48. This is the crux of the matter. He says, he who rejects me does not receive my words, has that which judges him. The word I've spoken will judge him in the last day. Please notice that Jesus indicates people have a decision to receive him or to reject him. Everyone has that freedom. Everyone has that responsibility. And he speaks here that there will be those who reject him, he says. He who rejects me does not receive my words. But it's vital we understand this truth. To reject Jesus is to reject God. And to not listen to Jesus' words and respond to them is to refuse to hear what God would want to say to you as a human being. And Jesus is saying that will be the standard used to punish and judge a person eternally after they die. He says, if someone rejects me and my words, cast those things aside, he will be judged for that error and decision. He says, and the way it will happen is the very word that I spoke will be the standard to judge him in the last day. Notice Jesus is saying, rejecting me, it's the voice of God here. Jesus says, rejecting me will cause you to be judged and condemned at the last day. It will transpire. Each person will be held accountable for what truth they heard. And Revelation 20 says, if your name's not in the book of life, you will be cast into the lake of fire. Now listen, that's not necessary for anyone. Jesus also said in John 5, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Here's the bottom line. It's your decision. But your decision, understand, will affect your life now and it will seal and determine your eternal destiny. Do you know the truth? You have the truth. Jesus has spoken it to you and is drawing you, but you have to make the decision and that decision carries a lot of responsibility. Choose wisely, amen? Let's stand. Let's pray together.